the Gold Radio Business Show is it's given us and given the business a voice to say what the Scottish economy could be. I hope that driving enterprise and business is at the heart of whoever is running any government. We believe in people striving, working hard, taking on people, creating the jobs. And we have to make it that we are so attractive for people to come here and to open businesses. But at the moment, it looks like when you listen to startups and scale-ups, it's the opposite. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, Thomas. Morning, a, a bit of a buzzier intro there, Willie. I like it in, <laughs> in the gallery. I like it. <laughs> right, well, let's start off a wee bit of global business news. Let's talk about our old pal, Elon Musk. Elon. Ah, he's in the news again this week. Willie, have you read the book? No, I by haven't. By Walter Isaacson. Yep. So for all the listeners, it's a great read. My one thing at the end of it was, I don't want to be Elon. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone would be. So for the listeners, in the last five years... The value of Tesla has increased by 1,000%. Wow. Right, which is unbelievable. The company today is worth $660 billion, Wow. Okay, and he's only third behind the other two big guys in front of him. Yeah. But this week, he's come under a bit of pressure. Uh-huh. The share price dropped by 6% okay. right, on Thursday, Friday. And it's all because that he is saying that production will not go to the level. So I think they produced 1.8 million cars last year. Yep. And it's they're going to only produce 2.2 million next year. Yeah. But what he's done is he's doing what he usually does, right? When he's back to the wall, he always throws one out there. Okay. Right. And what he said is, is that by 2025, that he will be mass producing to the level of 10,000 a week. Right, wow. an affordable electric car. Right. So the cheapest Tesla you can buy at the moment is forty-five thousand dollars, and he has put out a sign out to all the supply chain to say that I want you to come and work with me because by the end of two thousand and twenty-five, I want to put a car in the market that costs twenty-five thousand dollars. Wow. Right. I still think he's a he's a genius, but all geniuses are flawed. And he is certainly flawed in ways. But, I mean, just to come up with a new car, Willie, and the supply chain, as you say, and how you engineer it and how you produce it and the parts, I mean, it's a miracle that that ever happened. But he's under a bit of pressure now with the Chinese manufacturing. Yes. You know, the Chinese are great at sitting back, watching, letting somebody be the pioneer, make the mistakes, and then nip in. Um, and that's exactly what they've done. Yes, and and that's what they're good at. And right. you know, I mean, that's that that's how the market works. But you're right; he's always innovating, and he's always just teases the market with, "Okay, here's what's happening," but here, here's what's maybe going to happen. Yes. And I've saw an initial design of this car, and I tell you what, I would want one. But he's also done his usual. I'm going to buy more stock. <laughs> right, so I'm backing myself, so all you guys better back us. And that's only when the shares drop by 6%. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, I think his last stroke, remember, when he went and spent two billion of the company's money buying Bitcoin. Yes. <laughs> right, and that didn't go too well. And it's interesting now with, with Twitch or X or whatever it's called now. <laughs> <laughs> right, that, see how he gets on with that one. But I think, but the one thing that you're spot on about is he thought, it was a big, big move, the right move to open in China and didn't realise 
it meant now that the Chinese didn't come, had to come to Europe to take pictures to copy you. You could just buy one in Beijing. <laughs> and now Chinese manufacturers of electric cars are outselling them. Which right. is quite unbelievable. Yes, but, in a short time. You know, we've got we've got two, got a couple of Teslas, really like them. A lot of my friends who are in the motor trade don't think electric is the long-term answer because yeah. of the charging mm -hmm. that's got to be happening. And they're talking about hydrogen. I don't know, Willie. Um, you any thoughts on that? I hope they're wrong. I've just spent a fortune buying a complete electric car. I must <laughs> say, which is phenomenal, phenomenal. But again, I, I don't go far enough to worry about where the charging points are. Right? Yeah. I do the charging at my house. The but range, I love it. I love it. The range anxiety. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I think Elon will continue to inspire us and amuse us in equal measure, I would say. Okay, so again, sticking on the global theme, and we mentioned China. Big, big moves this week in China because of the underlying difficulties that China is finding. Uh -huh. um, obviously, um, there's a the debt burden across the local authorities throughout China. This week, President Xi has told them that they have to tighten their belts. But interestingly, at the same time, that he's allowing the banks to drop the ratio of cash reserves that they had for liabilities. Right. So this is a big, big move, and it, it, it's a, it's out there, I think, to try and prop up the yen or whatever it may be, but it just shows you that, you no, know, we said before, if China sneezes, everywhere will catch a cold, yep. and it certainly looks like the financial situation in China at the moment is not in best shape. I think it, it puts into perspective if President Xi is telling his local authorities to tighten their belt, it's not quite the same as our First Minister telling Glasgow City Council, will he? <laughs> well, I don't think it's that far removed, to be honest with you, right? Yeah, I think during that reign, it was a wee bit totalitarian, I would think, right? Yeah, it was certainly a bit of a dictatorship. So let's get a wee bit more near at home. But a sad news, obviously, in the last few days about Aberdeen paying off 500 people, again, cutting back and stuff. Yeah, so just, just for the listeners, just to, to let them know what Aberdeen does, it's a fund manager, um, used to be called Aberdeen Asset <laughs> Management, and they basically take pension money, they take people's money, endowments, etc., and they invest it in the stock markets. But the, the, the numbers involved, Willie, are absolutely huge. They've had an outflow of funds. This is funds that they manage on behalf of others mm. of about nine and a half billion um, in the six months to December 23. Yes. I mean, that's only six months. There's people with nine and a half billion pounds have said, I don't want you to run my money anymore. So of course they've had to cut their jobs. You know, there's, there's another colossus in um, Edinburgh, which a lot of people don't know about called Billy Gifford. Yes. Now they've got about two hundred and twenty-three billion under management, mm -hmm. and they are seen round the world as one of the best in the world at managing these funds. But even they're having a a slightly harder time, simply because interest rates. You know, you can stick money in the bank, and it's thought of as risk-free, mm -hmm. which it, it was until the great financial crisis, and you get five percent, so you don't need to worry about it. Mm -hmm. So that's the benchmark that these people have got to work to and people at Aberdeen have, have not been hitting it, will they? And unfortunately, it's about 10% of the workforce. It's you know a, lot I mean? of a lot of people. And it's, it's a, a lot of people. Bad times just after the new year. 
We see that uh, obviously people in the Scottish Parliament are listening to the show. Oh, obviously they've been talking this week. Ross Greer, the Green MP, is talking about maybe a four-day week for the public sector. Right, right. So we we mentioned that last week, and we talked about it. And I would actually looked through it for years and years. The only thing about standing up as a politician and saying a four-day week for the public sector, I forget how they they don't mention who's going to pay for it. Yes, right. and it's a private sector that will pay for it. Yes, I mean. <sighs> I've got a bit of an issue with this, if I'm perfectly honest. So if if somebody wanted to work less, then they would get paid less by the employer. And as as long as it suited both parties, a bit like the, the lady we doing last week, talking about flexible working, it's got to work for both. Yeah. But if it's this entitlement mentality of, well, I only want to work four days, but you, my employer, have got to pay me for five, that doesn't work, will it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't and, work. And, and it doesn't help as we were GDP. I mean, it's like it's less produ- productive. Yeah. But what I would say is, is if you can find a way that I've been trying to do for years and years, is if you can find a way you can make this, you know, if you worked four 10-hour shifts, yep. right, then fine, then you've, you've you've done your bit for the week, then that's fine. And if that works for yeah. people, But, but for that's you. not what you'll be talking about. You'll be talking about four, just working four days. No. So you'll be wanting to cut people's working week Right, to that stage. Now, it'd be fair to him, maybe that's not what you're saying, but if it is, does he understand what that does to our GDP, to our output? So I, I read that Morrison's, the supermarket, had tried it and they had actually scrapped the four-day week scheme. Yeah. Now, they were making, you know, one of the days was at the weekend, Willie, so that didn't suit the employee, so that didn't work. But I also read, I don't know if you know anything about it, that Asda were trying it as well. Yeah. I think people, employers are trying different things to keep the employees happy, but it's got to suit both. If it's one-sided, if it's too much the employer, or if it's too much the employee, I don't think it's going to work. What did you think, Tommy, the news is well coming out now for trading during Christmas that most people were down? I see quiz were down 11%. Yeah, I mean, I think... What's happening here, Willie? When I was in, in retail, there only you could only go to the shops. Yes. There was no such thing as e-commerce. And mm. through the pandemic, e-commerce really took a bigger stake because people were not allowed to go out. Yeah. It's been quite interesting, the COVID inquiry up in Scotland this week. But yes. um so and then it's it's came back a bit with the e-commerce as people. So I think um, and this is my issue with commercial rates that businesses have been asked to pay in Scotland because it used to be 100% of their business went through a shop and you paid your business rates and that was fine but now let's just say the amount if you're a retailer like Quiz maybe they've got 60% of their business coming through their shops and 40 e-commerce but they've been asked to pay a higher and higher business rates on their shops and the Scottish government has not followed Westminster there was a 75% um, discount in the hospitality sector helping leisure hospitality the Scottish government have not followed that this is why I say businesses you and I speak to they don't feel this Scottish government has their back and that is disgraceful I think what this indicates also, Tom, and you've seen it all the, year, all the years when you've been retailing, that 
people always, even when things were tough, people always found the money at Christmas. Yep. Right? They, they made sure that their kids, you know, didn't suffer. I think things are so bad for people. And I think these figures include both online and in the, in the high street. Oh, do they, Willie? Yes. Right. So I think now that people are at the limit. You know, people this year, for the first time in many years, have been looking at where they have to draw the line. And I think you'll find when it all comes out, I, I wonder if anybody's numbers will be up at all. Yeah. On last year. The person that I listen to the most in the high street is Simon Wolfson at Next. Yeah. It's a, it's a brilliantly managed business and he has got a big mix of online and his shops. But he's he's got a graph that shows the decreasing amount that's going to come from his shops and he's, he's squeezing his, his estate yes. there. It's a very interesting thing, but at a time of change, business rates need to be tackled by governments and nobody seems to be grasping that nettle, will he? Yeah. And also, I see that um, Royal Mail are back in the news again this week. They're talking about dropping their, their letter deliveries, maybe from six days down to five, and even potentially going as low as three. They're saying that, you know, given that parcels uh, would be affected, should businesses be concerned about this um, as posts gone the way of the, the dodo these days for businesses? The dodo. <laughs> I haven't heard of the dodo for a while, really. Um, so, I mean, this is... When the post office used to, you know, when, when we used to send letters, <laughs> remember letters, Willie? And um, when we used to send letters and there was no other way and then email come in and then, you know, you can send cards and everything. So here's another business that's in change and is, you know, who's managing this change? Is the leadership of that business understanding the change that needs to come in? Um, I don't know the answer here, but, they're losing a great deal of money, Willie. Yeah. So either the customer pays if they want a Saturday delivery or that business has got to rationalise. Well, I certainly hope if they've got hundreds of millions in savings that they give it all to the sub-postmasters sub where they made their lives a misery. Yeah, so I mean, I think that story continues. I think legislation is going to go through Westminster. And I was actually heartened by our own First Minister saying that if he could, he would just follow Westminster if it was going to be quicker. That was the first time I've actually heard a First Minister in Scotland say he would follow Westminster, but, but good on him for it. Yeah. Now, whether he does it, yes. we'll, we'll, we'll judge him by that. Yeah. But I thought that was quite refreshing. Great. And I see also that Santander, a um, bit of a lone voice, have decided that, no, the market is not getting as good as it says, and they've actually put fixed rate mortgages up. I know. It's... I, just after Christmas, um, four of the biggest lenders put their mortgage rates down. I didn't quite understand why they were being so bullish, Willie, because, you know, there was economic data. I didn't quite encourage that. And then Santander has said, oh, hang on a minute. We can't borrow money at these rates. Therefore, there's only one person pays. You've got it, the customer. You're right. And also, we've talked about in the past, the ULS, but see that the government is feeling the heat from lobby groups after its surprising slashing of the Scottish public transport budgets earmarked for the electrification of the bus fleet. All this is coming in the hot heels of the furora about the ULS. So we'll see we'll be doing something in one hand and taking it away in the other. So 
always remember, I, I didn't quite understand what was happening with you, Les, and you explained to me that you thought it was a tax on the poor. Yes. Because of the older vehicles. If you couldn't afford a newer car, you were going to pay. Correct. Um, and therefore, what alternative do people have but public transport then? Yes. And is this is this being cut, it, or is it a transition to electric Well, there something? was a plan to spend hundreds of millions electrifying, electrifying the bus fleet, right, right on, on, on SPT. But what's the stats, and uh, to be honest, I don't understand these numbers, but up until last week, it showed you that since the introduction of ULES, that the usage of public transports went down by 25%. So I don't, I don't get that. It's gone down. Well, I think people are just saying, you know what, I'm not going to the town anymore. If you're going to the town, to be fair, that's what you would think. So maybe Stuart Patrick will be able to explain that to us if he's next door, will he? Well. Um, I don't understand it, I must tell you. So we can't let a week go by without mentioning the friend of the show, Patrick Harvey. Oh, Patrick. Right, so he's back to try and introduce more rent control measures as the emergency measures introduced during COVID expire on the 1st of April. The Minister is looking to bring in new rules that will allow for some rent increases but with complex caps on it and right for tenants to appeal. Some groups call the measures over-complex, making it hard for landlords to get right, rights or tenants to understand what is allowed. We parry again up to these games. Here it is again. So, do we agree that there should be affordable rents for people in Scotland? Yes. You and I both agree that. And we agree with Patrick Harvey on that. And in our own ways, we're working on it behind the scenes. Absolutely. So, we agree at the strategic level. Where we disagree is how you do it. And I was looking at stats this week, Willie, and it said that Scotland is the only place where landlords are selling up. The rest of the UK, there's yeah. just been something, you know, London, Manchester, rental sector is growing because people are getting a return for it. And what we've always said in the show is rent caps, in the short term, it's a cheap headline for a politician. In the long term, it chokes supply and it puts the rental prices up. And I think if Patrick Harvey sat with the big rental people, people who make a living from it, and said, can we work together because we both want the same thing? But I think it went out for two weeks of consultation. Now, the people I spoke to said, Tom, two weeks of consultation on a bill going through Parliament, they've not even read what we've said to them. They've decided it before they've even listened to us. And it's overcomplicated. It won't work. And what it'll do is it'll mean less houses being made available for people in Scotland to rent. And in the long term, that means People pay far too much. And I see again this week that he's again trying to force people into having to buy heat pumps. Heat pumps, oh right? my God. Right. So here's here's what I'd say. This is the last time. Two no, things. No. No, 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 two things, two things. I'm going to invite Patrick Harvey for the last time to come and see a house that will be the model for affordable rents where you don't have to go through Parliament to change the law. If everyone follows what I'm doing, we will be in a much, much better place. The and country, energy the efficient. People, and energy efficient. But everything at the heart of this development is for the benefit of the tenant, right? And the I can back that up. So we're inviting you, Patrick, to come and see it. 
right? And also, what I do is I like to put a challenge out. I did it last week and I'd like to do it again. Right. Since Patrick has brought it up again about heat pumps, I am challenging him or anyone else, right? I will pay for the testing. It's Draftclyde University. If anybody wants to come and demonstrate to me that a heat pump is the way forward to attack climate change, right? And I'm saying it's not. So here's a challenge. So, and I'm, this challenge is not just to Patrick Harvey. If anybody out there who's selling heat pumps on the basis that they say use 500 watts and get 3.5 kilowatt out, I am absolutely debunking that. <laughs> and anybody that says that heat pumps gives us four times the energy produced, then I'm putting out a challenge. And what I'm saying, Thomas, after the trials at Strathclyde University, we'll get our friend, Professor Sir Jim McDonald, to carry out the test. If I am wrong, I will come on this show and eat the biggest plate of humble pie that you have ever seen. I don't think you can say fairer than that, Willie. I think I really hope someone takes you up in this challenge. And I just want to finish by saying, you know, th does this Scottish government have the back of business? Because business is the only way we pay for all the seemingly free things that the government is giving. You know, the free baby box, the free um, prescriptions, the free... They're not actually free. Somebody needs to pay for them, and it's the yes. taxpayer that pays for them. Um, calling them free, it's maybe free to that person, but it's not free to the taxpayers of Scotland. And we might agree with that that's the way, but we need a flourishing business sector with the government having our back... And all I would say is rates, six bands of income tax, the tourist tax, all these things, the businesses you and I speak to, they don't believe this Scottish government has their back and that needs to change now. They are all barriers to growth. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. This week's special guest is Lucinda Bruce Gardine, founder of Genius Foods, one of the UK's leading gluten-free bakery brands and chair of Scotland Food and Drink. So hi, Lucinda. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And um, Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for all the support you give Scottish Edge as well. That's a pleasure. I, I absolutely love it. You're always smiling up there on the platform. And <laughs> um, I know you give a lot of the businesses your time and effort and help. So thank you for that. It's a pleasure. So Genius Foods is, is maybe the middle of the story. I'm not going to say it's the end of the story because there's still a lot to come. But... Tell us a wee bit about your background and how you came to be doing that sort of thing. Okay, so food has always been my absolute passion. Um, my family ran a very large catering and hotel business in London. Uh -huh. And they always said to me, don't go into food. You know, it's <laughs> right. antisocial, it's badly paid. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard work. You know, go and, be a, go and be a lawyer, go and be a doctor. Right. And so I went off to study physiology because I love science, but thinking possibly then I would turn that into being a doctor. Decided so, in the so end where not did you to, study? In London, right, at Queen okay. Mary's University okay. in the East End. And um, decided I didn't want to be a doctor in the end, but I wanted to do something that helped people and I wanted to do something with food. Right. So when I left university... I went to Leith School of Food and Wine in London. Oh, um, Yes. Okay. And had, had the most amazing time learning how to 
cook, you know, croissant and souffles. And, and there was a pub attached to the school that I would go and sit in every night with all of the other students. And we'd sit with piles of books and we'd go through all the recipe books. And, it, and we were just in heaven. We were in heaven. We were with our kindred spirits and right. it was amazing. And we'd get thrown out of the pub at midnight every night. And we'd <laughs> off we'd go with all our books and be there the following day. And so I wanted to hone my skills. So I then went to Babendum, which is a Michelin star restaurant in London, or it was at the time. I know it well. Um, on the Fulham Road. And I worked there uh, under Simon Hopkinson. So as a... As a chef. Chef, right, okay. I was a, I was a chef to party of cold starters, which meant wow. I was shucking oysters to order. I was shelling crabs and lobsters to order. I had no hands, basically. Within six months of being there, my hands were sort and, of and dissolved. Me, was it as brutal as... It was pretty brutal, yeah. yes. It, it's hard really hard. But what it taught me is that I could work really hard under masses of pressure <laughs> at, a, at very high standards um, and for very long hours. Right. And, you know... <laughs> But and that's a good lesson when you're 23. Yeah, that's a good lesson, and it toughened me up, and it, it made me gritty. Right. And but I knew I didn't want to work in a Michelin star kitchen for very long. No. Um, because it was it was brutal. So I then ran a catering company in London. Right. Then went to Italy and and catered uh, over there for American and um, UK art and architecture tourists. Right. In just outside Lucca, and that was amazing. I learned all about Italian and Tuscan food. Look, it's a beautiful place. And I was making fresh bread every day uh, for all... I was looking after 45 guests. Right. And I was working really hard creating you know, all sorts of lovely food for them, made fresh bread every day, and became very, very interested in the fact that on a stormy day, my bread wouldn't rise. And on a beautiful sunny day with blue skies, the, the quality of my bread was so much better. And so right. that was sort of, you know, with my scientific brain and the fact that you're using yeast, which is a, an organism, it's a live organism, I found that very, very interesting. So, um, so I really, really started to get very, very interested in bread. Um, I went, came back to the UK. Leith School of Food and Wine asked me to write the Science of Cooking uh, course book that they use now. Right. And it's about the functionality of ingredients and why you use wheat flour in bread versus a cake versus white sauce, what it's doing in there. And so I spent four years writing that book on all the mainstream ingredients that we use all the time, which was fascinating. And during that time, I had my first two children. Um, my eldest son... My goodness, you're busy. ...is very, very allergic to dairy. Ah. And we found out when he was about three months old that he couldn't touch dairy. Right. And then my second son, while well, I was just finishing off the book, so, so you know, two and a half years later, um, was diagnosed with gluten intolerance. Right. And so I'd spent four years writing about the science of mainstream ingredients. And so that had given me the knowledge to, to think, okay, well, I know what those ingredients are doing, so how would I substitute those for people with allergies? So I wrote a book called How to Cook for Food Allergies, um, which, which was... Um, creating the food that we lived on at home that I love to give my family um, that didn't have dairy, nuts, gluten, soy, or eggs, because right. those are the five major allergen groups. And that book had to have a gluten-free bread recipe in it because I'd realised there was no gluten-free bread. So uh, what's fresh the bread on the market. for this, Lucinda? So that, that's really the first 10 years of my career. Right. Um, wow. 
And yeah, and there was, I, I'd realized, you know, with Angus, with his dairy allergy, it wasn't difficult. You know, you could live a Mediterranean Asian diet, no problem. Gluten was a whole different ball, ball game because it right. creates the structure of all the bakery products that we eat, bread, cake, pastry. It's, it's integral. The gluten in the wheat flour is Everyone integral. Everyone we love. <laughs> yeah, everything we love, exactly. And gluten is in two-thirds of the food that we eat. Yeah. So it really does have a massive bearing. And I couldn't find any bread anywhere that I wanted to feed my son. It was all hard bricks, um, shrouded in lots of plastic, nine-month shelf life because no one wanted to buy it. <laughs> and it was just shocking. And it was £7 a loaf. And wow. I just thought, this isn't good enough. This is my moment. Um, right. And my family are very entrepreneurial. I'd always thought, well, I need to do something myself, get a business off the ground. It, it ticked the health box. It ticked the food box. And I was off. And so I spent three years, well, 18 months in my kitchen at home, basically um, <laughs> literally blending five grams of all of the gluten-free ingredients I could find in my local health food shop wow. until I'd created the structure of bread and I made thousands of loaves a day. The kids would come, sorry, over, over that period, I, the kids would come back, there'd be about 14 loaves of bread on the side. And they'd say, that one tastes good, mum. So but all son, the others are terrible. Your son was a guinea pig. The, the three, your three sons by three this sons. stage were guinea pigs. And it took 18 months for them to say, mum, that's delicious. Can I have some more? And children, so don't, children don't lie. Wow. And they were my chief tasters. Wow. So I stopped. Yeah, you have to, when you're inventing something, you have to know when to stop <laughs> because you can, you can continue to invent and invent and invent and, and try and get to perfection. Yeah. You have to know when it's good enough. And when, when the kids said, that's delicious, mom. Can I have some more? Right, right. That's it. I'm going to stop. I'm going to get you come in and lecture my IT find... guys. <laughs> right, seriously, exactly. who want to, you know, take it to the next level every week? You know, it's another six million. <laughs> yeah. But what a story! What a story! So yeah. That's that's amazing. So out of a family need, your yes. business grew, but but yes. you had the background. You had served as well. He likes to say an apprenticeship. Yeah about learning about hard work, and, but you also had the education for the science yeah. to understand what was happening in the food. Yeah. So what happens yes. then? Go so, for the kitchen, what happens? So the customer says, Mum, I love it. What happens so now? So basically it became a calling and I became, you know, totally passionate and it was my problem to solve. And so once I'd got to a point where I had a loaf of bread coming out of my oven, at home, I'd broken two ovens and broken my Magimix by this stage a couple of times. <laughs> um, I walked into my local Sainsbury's store and said, look, I need somewhere to scale this recipe up. I'm not going to show it to anyone. I'm not going to show it to any investors until I've scaled it. There's no point in showing someone something that's come out of your oven at home mm -hmm. right. uh, because they won't take that seriously. So, you know, when you're developing something from scratch, commercialize it because that's when the fun starts. That's when the true challenge starts. Um, and the Sainsbury's manager was quite surprised. And I said, well, you've got my book on the shelf, so I'm not completely mad. <laughs> I need somewhere to make this bread. And they said, well, literally, um, you know, 20 miles out of Edinburgh in Bathgate, uh -huh. there's the largest gluten-free bakery in the country. And did you know and that? And I just moved up from London. All right. You can probably tell I'm not Scottish. I, I'd moved up while I was writing my book. And um, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, literally 20 miles down the road was the wow. largest gluten-free bakery in the UK. So, so who owned that? Finsbury Food Group. 
Friendsbury, right. right. Okay. So went to see them, said, here you are, come up with this bread. And um, they agreed to help me scale it up. So, you know, one of the challenges people um, say to me is, look, people make it sound so easy, but trying to get an appointment with people is difficult, Tom. So how do you get in with, you know, you, you, you chance your arm at Sainsbury's, but how do you get in to see the Finsbury people? I think the, I, I think I probably just sounded very compelling on the phone <laughs> and probably quite determined. And I think probably with my background, that helped a little bit. Right. The fact that, you know, my CV said that I knew something about food. Okay. You know, yeah. and I'd written books on how to cook for food allergies. So, so that probably helped. That gave yeah. me a platform. Give and you I, credibility. And yeah. I have to say, I think writing books can be a yeah. very good way to, to, to create a platform doors. for yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Lucinda, did they taste yeah. your bread and say, this is as good or better than anything that we are making? They were astounded yeah. because at the time they made pita breads, um, sort of flat things. Yes. Uh -huh. Or things that didn't have to move very much or rise very much yeah. because that's the difficulty um, with gluten-free. You're having to get it to double in size yeah. and then stay there while it's being baked and yeah. then while it cools and then while you slice it. And that structural element is exceptionally difficult. It's the scaffolding. You're creating yes. the scaffolding yeah. from a from a glass of water. Um, I was turning that into a loaf of bread. Right. So 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 it was it was difficult. And 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 as I said, you know, when you go from um, small to large scale, that's when the fun starts because if there are idiosyncrasies at small scale yeah. in your blend, in your formulation, no matter what, what it is, whether it's food or something else, those idiosyncrasies amplify as you grow. As as you as you grow the volume of what you're making. Okay. And we were finding that different batches of ingredients behave completely differently. If we use tapioca starch from Vietnam, the bread, we'd have to chip the bread out of the oven. It would be rising so much. Right. If we use tapioca starch from South America, the bread turned out brilliantly. Um, wow. you know, and there's there was so, you were so learning much by learning. doing. We were learning by doing. It was trial and error. It took a year. I was working on night shift. And and um, what was your deal it with? It took a year with, to get it sorted. With Finsbury Foods, were they saying, okay, if you can solve this, we're going to give you orders, or we're going to what? What was the deal? So the deal was that I think they were fascinated, right? And they they wanted to help me, um, and they knew I wanted to start a business. And we asked them to license it. So, so while I was going about scaling the bread with with them, um, I was speaking to people that wanted to invest in the idea. Right. Um, I was approached um, by Sir Bill Gamble, yeah, um, whose son was at school uh, with my son, and and he'd say, "Listen, why are you always covered in flour?" <laughs> well, because I've been at the bakery, you know, scaling my gluten free bread. And he said, "Well, you must show me when it's when you've when you've managed." Right. And when I dropped some around to his house, he rang me literally within 24 hours to say, Lucinda, this is going to change my life. This is going to change the lives of many other people. So was he gluten? And yes, I've been celiac wow. for 30 years. I haven't been able to eat bread for 30 years. And I'd like to support you. Wow. <laughs> and so together we sort of, we then, I mean, Bill, Bill was obviously very established up here. I wasn't. Um, you know, I, I was a mum of a five, three and one-year-old having moved up from London not long before. And and he was able to introduce me to some people that could help me turn my my product into a into a brand, which right. I'd never done before. So again, I think that's really important. Make sure you get the right people around you. 
uh, don't ever feel as an entrepreneur that that you can do everything. No. Because you can't. <laughs> you know, you'll have a superpower in one area or maybe two, but you won't have a superpower in all those areas. And so get people in around you that will help you turn something special into something wonderful. Um, so, right, yeah. so, so Bill invested. So Bill invested. And he brought some others along? Yes, he brought some right, others okay. along. We, um, we, we were able to invest in the team um, to actually do the day job as well. I was so, in the bakery covered in flour. So how did you go um, about knowing how to build your team then? Because you've been on your own for a week. Yes, while. it was three years on my own. It was a big deal sharing the project right. with someone else or with other people because you know you, there's a lot of trust that goes into suddenly working with others. And um, it was, I knew that I needed the help because I, I had never commercialized an FMCG product before. Yep. Um, and so I took a lot of guidance really from the board that that um, I was now working with, all of whom were, were serious businessmen. And obviously I was working with the bakery. We were licen- licensing them to make the bread. So, so we had. You know, I'd been working with them flawlessly for you know. So Finsbury continued years. to manufacture. Yes, for they you. did. Yeah, okay. Yes, they did. Right. So you've got the IP on the recipe. Well, uh, yes, there was a trade secret. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. But that's how you got your money. And yes. So they were paying yeah. a license fee. Yes. 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 So that kept yes. your cash flow kind of yes. going. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And right. then in the end, actually, um, because um, it, it went gangbusters, basically yeah. the moment the bread hit. Tesco's. So Tesco decided to put us into 700 stores across the UK. Wow. Having never sold a loaf of bread. I mean, that that was the groundbreaking sort of, it, it was that groundbreaking. Right. And how much was, was your loaf? Because it was the first fresh, it was the first fresh product yeah. on the market. And the loaf was £2.49 wow. rather than seven. Wow. Right. Because I was determined that it had to be accessible yeah. and affordable to everyone. Well done. Because I was horrified that people who were diagnosed on average at the age of 60 were having to pay that much money for a loaf of bread. It just felt wrong. Yeah. So I wanted to make it as affordable as possible. So, it, yeah, people were people were crying on the end of the phone. I'd be at home on my laptop <laughs> trying to get back to consumers. Um, and I'd have mums ringing saying, you know, my son can now have a sandwich in his in his lunchbox. Wow, amazing. And he's not being bullied yeah. at lunchtime anymore. Yeah. You know, and it was just overwhelming. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Mm. So <laughs> um you're you're then you've got the idea, you've learned by doing, you're now scaling. How scary was that? It if was at all? very scary <laughs> and very tough. Because, you know, back to the idiosyncrasies, um, suddenly we were just getting through batches and batches and batches of ingredients. We went from naught to 10,000 loaves a week. A week? Yes. And (laughs) uh, very quickly because 700 stores across the UK Mm -hmm. had queues of people waiting for the bread to be be delivered (laughs) because it was only delivered twice a week at the time because because the supermarkets didn't realise the demand. Right. For the bread, because gluten-free bread had never sold before, because it was such poor it was quality. A new category. So it was a completely new category. Amazing. So, so it was it was really tough. So we all of a sudden, they're saying right, serious okay. quality issues. Really serious, really hard to be getting great bread out twenty-four-seven. You know, we went literally from um, twelve hours a day to twenty-four hours a day, 
making bread 24-7. Very, very sensitive formulation, very sensitive process, far too manual for its own good. Right. Um, So it was really tough. I used to have black hair. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. (laughs) I now have very white hair. Um, But yes, it was a... It was a journey. So for the for the listeners, MD who's in the middle of scaling, any with hindsight, any any nuggets of information? Absolutely. So know the science. So if you're developing something from scratch, um, it's so important to have scientists working around you, asking questions, asking the poignant questions, looking at the specifications of the materials that you're using, looking at the process in minute detail, understanding what causes an issue and how you put it right. You can save so much money, so much wasted material, and be so much more efficient if you know the science behind what you're trying to produce, particularly when you're in that scaling phase. I mean, you're in charge of the science. Um, so was, I, was that your superpower? I think I, I think in a very scientific way, but I'm also a real foodie. Right. Um, and I suppose I was just head down in it, trying to trying to make it work um, with the team at the bakery. Um, I could have done with an awful lot more help. Um, right. And we ended up working with Edinburgh University, the physics school there. Right. Um, the soft matter physicists. Imagine I, that for a loaf of bread while I do um, and, and they were amazing. They helped us with the stability of the bubble structure. They helped <laughs> us understand the specifications of the ingredients we needed to be using. They were amazing. And, you know, after 10 years of a lot of guesswork, we had answers to some really, really big questions very quickly. And so I'm a real evangelist around the importance of science for the food industry. Right. Because a lot of people go out there making granny's, granny's cake or uh-huh. granny's jam it, that, you know, without that science yeah. in the background. And it's amazing that so many people now can can enjoy a loaf of bread you couldn't before. At the height, how many mm-hmm. would you be doing a week? Would it go from 10,000 to 20? Hey, golly, well, we were making millions wow. a month. A yeah. month? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. All I mean, the time. Yeah. Bread, the, the bakery shop yeah. twi- twice a year. So, yeah. and how soon was it when someone came along and copied? It took five years yeah. for our competitor to, our main competitor to get anywhere near yeah. the quality of the bread. So that's you quite a while. You get a good run. You yeah, good yeah run. it was a good run. We should have had more confidence in that, that it was going to be harder yeah. for other people to do it. So your business is going great. You have plenty of challenges in there. Um, what's the next bit of the story? So I was basically head down um, trying to get do- um, bread out of the door for the UK market, I was also trying to get bread up um, out of the door for the North American market from Canada. I was in Spain getting bread out of the door for the Southern European market. Very, very challenging Spread times. Spread too thin? Uh, definitely. But, and I think that's another thing, if you have a product that that has genuine wow factor, it's it's so important not to spread yourself too thin and take every opportunity that comes your way. Because if you have something great, everyone wants it and everyone wants a particular version of it. And you just can't do that when you are learning about your product as well and trying to cement yourself in your market or in your in your top markets because you end up doing everything badly. So be really, 
really careful to focus on the highest size of prize and doing it really well and then and then looking to the next opportunity. And are you still running Genius Foods today? No. So I, I so exited. What happened? So we sold. We right. sold the business in 2021 okay. uh, to a German business called Catches. Um, they're still based in Bathgate. Um, Which I had, is great. I had done my bit. Um, I had literally spent 16 years with my head in the mixing bowl um, <laughs> and felt that I'd, I'd changed the category. I'd, I'd created a category. I'd changed the market. People could now buy really decent gluten-free bakery products. It wasn't just bread. It was, you know, we had 25 products in the market, mm-hmm. both in the UK and around the world. And it was time to do something else. And I'm now just delighted to be... Um, chairing Scotland Food and Drink, yep. which does a very, very important job to support uh, the food and drink sector here in Scotland. Um, we've identified a £4 billion opportunity over the next five years for growth in Scotland. And I'm just delighted to be raising awareness of the importance of the food sector, food and drink sector. Um, not only is it very important for our, col- our economy, that we employ more people than any other sector across the UK is that right? in food and drink. Wow. Um, but it's also um, vital for the health um, of our nation. You know, the food and drink sector are creating our food security, which in this day and age is incredibly important with supply chains broken. Um, And I'm also very, very keen to be promoting the innovation that's going on um, in response to many um, many of the challenges we have, geopolitical, but climate change. Yep. And all of the other things that we're dealing with, um, and there's some amazing stuff going on in Scotland um, right. using serious technology. We've got AI being used um, to to scan uh, menus and um, recipes for for errors in in, in ingredients. Uh, that's Liberate. Um, we've got businesses that are learning to track the behaviour of fish movement in fish farms um, <laughs> to, to ensure wow. that the fish are happy. Um, there's, so can uh, we say that using AI so is using your loaf? No, that's oh, uh, yes, no exactly. Oh, AI, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's lots of great yeah. stuff. So listen, that you've you've been through the full gambit of the entrepreneurial journey. Which bit did you enjoy the best? I think I got a real buzz, obviously, um, when I was developing genius bread right. at the beginning. It was just the most amazing thing to see that bread recipe turning not, not you know, turning into a loaf to begin with, but then turning into many loaves going around our spiral cooler and coming out of the oven. Right. And then and then the listing into 700 supermarkets across the UK Amazing. was just made the whole effort so worthwhile. And I knew the impact that bread would have. So that was a very exciting time. I have to say now I feel just as purposeful would you do it all again? I would. You would? I would, but I need to... Because not everybody would. I would mm. do it, but I need to find my next big thing. Right. I scan all the time. I scan all the time for ideas. I'm helping <laughs> I'm helping other founders, um, particularly female founders, mm. um, just helping them as much as I can with sharing my experience. Yep. Um, I'm doing my bit for the Scottish food and drink industry. Um, but and I Scottish am also, Edge. And yep. Scottish Edge. You're helping Evelyn in there. Yeah. Absolutely, and I love doing that. I get such a, a buzz and looking for my next. Well, Cinder, what a wonderful journey. story. Thank you so much That's for coming pleasure. on this morning.
That's a pleasure. It's been wonderful to see you both again. Thank you for having me. So thanks for coming in because I see you all the time at the Edge um, events, but I never actually knew the story of genius and it was quite genius. Absolutely. So thanks for coming in. More power to your elbow and keep supporting us at Edge. Thank you. I absolutely will. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Tom, real interesting guest this morning. Yes. Mike Annandale, he's the managing director of the Five Golf Studio. Mike, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Thanks welcome very much to the programme, Mike. I am really interested to know what you do because I haven't read the notes this morning. Perfect. <laughs> I can tell you it's interesting. Okay, Willie. Mike, tell us a wee bit about what you do and then obviously your question. So I've got uh, a few businesses on the go that I do with my partner, Melanie Greenwood, and one of them is an indoor golf studio, Fife Golf Studio. Um, and it's an indoor facility. Uh, it's a, it's a, the technology in it's fantastic. Right. You know, you've got uh, the plate you stand on is hydraulic, so it just moves automatically in line with the course contours. Oh, wow. You've got the auto tee there. There's different mats for rough fairway and, and sand for when you're in the bunkers. So it's got really good practice facilities on it. Um, as well as there's a 251 courses around the world to play. So yeah. so where is your place, Mike? It's just in Inverkeithing, so we're just over the bridge right, from Edinburgh. Right. And it's interesting, the demographics and how far people are travelling, they are coming over from Edinburgh and, right. you know, it's a, there's a good sort of hour. I've had people over from Glasgow as well come into the facility. So, so is it like a high-tech It's, it's range, very high-tech, yeah, yeah. And it's uh, size-wise, it's a big unit as well for when you're buying it. So this is where with the question I've got coming up is the scaling of that. Right. So, um, so we're clear, but is this yeah. a thing like where, it sounds very like much for the pros, but just for no, amateurs? The pros are definitely used. I've got three pros that do lessons from it. Right. Um, and they're independent, so they just get booked in and use the space. Is it is, usually, if you get bays, is it all It's bays? one bay, that's one where bay. I, so I've tested it over the right. last sort of year and a half. Right. So only one at two. a time? Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so you can get up to six people in a round. Right. Um, we've had uh, Disabled Golf Scotland in as well. Yeah. There was 10 of them in. So that's kind of the maximum really for where I've got just now. Right. I've got a whole putting area as well for, for practising on the putting side. But the, the system itself, you putt properly to, to right. finish off the hole. So, so how long have this been running? A couple of years? It's coming up a couple of years, amazingly. Yeah. Um, so if, if, if Willie, I, I don't play golf, I know Willie plays a wee bit. So if Willie said, right, I want to play the postage stamp at St Andrews, mm-hmm. you put it, it can in, go in yeah. and, yeah. That, and that comes yeah. up yeah. and well, they can hit it so we've got uh, you can play the whole course <laughs> do you want to name my house time is there a hole called the post yes. stamp alright yes. oh, brilliant yes. <laughs> I think it's the eighth hole at June eighth hole, right? yeah, that's right, right. Yeah. So I've actually got a golf simulator in my house, right? Yep. But it's not to the extent you're talking. This is right. another level. Yeah, you know what Mike's talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, but a wee bit. But this is another level. So, yep. so which, so, so you've you've done that. It's been over a couple of years. Is it is it a commercial success yet? Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, I really haven't pushed it. If I'm being honest, right. A lot of word of mouth has just grown organically. Right. So it's been interesting to see how far it goes with that. Um, and then I just see the possibilities there now of of extent, like getting you know, scaling this up and, and bringing more in. Right. And they can have a whole indoor practice facility that's got short game practice, bunker practice, and then you've got these these booths for the the simulators. Yeah. There's a the Zen uh, putting platform as yes. well. You yeah. know, it's yes. hydraulic, so to have a putting studio. So it's, I'm going on down the road of more of an academy route. So you can start to 
bring the young ones in and people that are interested yeah. in golf and they've got a facility there that they can practice without the the sort of challenge of going on a course for the first time and all that. Well, it sounds like a big that's, unit, is it like well, 10,000 square foot? That's kind of where we're going with it. Yeah. Um, and ideally, if I can get a bit of land, build the a unit on that that can house that as well as have, you know, serviced office space, um, a hub space um, and fill that. And I've got other businesses that we could use to fill that as well. So what's your question for us this morning? The question morning? is, how do I get the funding for it? Right, okay. <laughs> Because it's going to be quite an expense and it, it's a bit of a chicken and egg because I don't know what I can put So what does quite an expense look like? Well, it could be, like I've got a big vision yeah. and it's massive. What does it cost to build the next one? It's going to be, I reckon, anywhere between sort of three and five million. Right. If I can get the land and build the unit and then that would be a separate asset. You right. know, we could set it up as a separate entity and have that as the asset and then right. fill it with the businesses for the income. Yeah, that's that's the how I see the vision of the next stage, and then right. there's a bigger one which I've kicked to the moon. Right. <laughs> so just that. if you stick to one, so what would you mean? Him or we're here, you're yep. in the dragon's den, and we're thinking right. of investing. So what do you think your return would be on spending five five million? Well, that's the one I've got now. We're doing very little to it, and there's so much more we can do. It. You're, you're looking at thirty five grand I've pulled in in a, in a full season there. Right. Um, so expanding that, having coffee shops and you know, there's there's more that we could put in that space to yeah, utilise yeah. the area and bring the revenue in. Is there a model, mate, that you've saw yep. working somewhere in the world to say, ah, that's, that's, that's it there? On a bigger, there's, it's all South Korean. Um, South so, Korean? Yeah, this is where the technology's coming oh. from that I've got. And if, if you have a look at what they're doing over there, it's one of the biggest grown golf nations, but most of it's indoors. Uh -huh. And when you see the facilities they're putting up, um, and it's they've got competitions that are running throughout these facilities and there's we'll over probably tell you South Korea dominate <laughs> ladies golf in the world yes they do yeah. Aye. Yes. Wow. yeah it's massive Aye. something every morning Aye. every number one two three and four I think in the world yeah, are all that's South right, Korea yeah. Yeah. so but I would have to say you know, I don't want to put a damper no, on right. it right? yeah this is what but I'm here for it, it doesn't sound even wrapping it up it doesn't sound as if you can get to the net profit numbers right right to it take you forever to get your money back at five million. So, yeah. what I would say, Mike, is you don't need to um, surely build a new unit. You don't know because uh, building is expensive. Yes, I mean, that's, it, yeah. it just is these days with inflation. But there are plenty of commercial properties which you've been looking. Yeah. Um, now, maybe not exactly where you want it, yeah. but you, you know, sometimes you got to compromise. Yeah, yeah, and. I think you'd be able to find a building, you know, for a fraction of that money, 10,000 square feet, and then put your tech in. So I think you've you've got to, as Willie said, you've you've got to prove it. Aye. Going to investors just now mm -hmm. are going to say what Willie said. Yep. Mm, you haven't proven it yet. Whereas if you go, right, this building cost me a million, I'm actually bringing in, you know, 20 grand a week, and there's my profit. I want to do the next one. Then people can go, right, okay, yep. you're on. Yes. Whereas just now it's all about hope Aye. value. Aye. So you've got to prove it. Okay. Aye, so, and, and just to follow on for that, just to expand on what Tom's saying, look for somebody that's got a big unit that's lying empty. Go to them and say, I've got an idea. I don't want a 10-year lease from my neck. If you take a wee chance and I take a wee chance, your place has been lying empty for a year, two years now, whatever, let me set this up, see how it goes, and if it works, blah, 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 then we can maybe talk about so, renting it or we can talk about buying it because I think you really need to get to a thing where your next unit, your next 
trial costs you a fraction of what you think you yeah. need to buy it. As Perfect. I say, and it's then when you idea, prove that, it? it'd be the usual, you get people tripping the other side to give you money, right? But if people see a business, like, like go back to your pal, Jim with the paddle tennis. Yeah. Jim Jim McMahon, a good friend of Tom's and myself's, who certainly knows about how to make numbers work. Um, way back when he was, at, he was at the forefront of the whole paddle tennis thing, and he could tell right at the start there was an 18% return on your money, right? So people knew right away if I'm putting this in, here's what I'm getting. And I think if you... Proves that that works. I think you'll have no problem getting money. And Perfect. I think I think you will be on to a winner. Aye. But you've got to prove Just a it. Stone. And prove it with as least risk exactly. as you okay. can do. Yeah. I like Willie's idea a bit. Funny but, so well. but just, I mean, there's plenty of commercial properties. Yeah, exactly. The problem I've got with them is the height. The height. Aye. The height's there. You need a lot of I've seen. Yeah, right. um, plenty of units in Glasgow with plenty of height. Like, some have been lying empty for 10 years. Yeah. Right? So just funning out. Yeah. Brilliant big man, good Perfect. luck. Thank Thanks you very for much. coming on. No, I appreciate your right. time. Cheers. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Please keep in touch with the show Shall and let we? us know how you got on. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Great. Cheers. <laughs>